And that's why I, you know, to simplify it, I always tell my athletes very simply, um, you don't, don't use your leg like a hammer, use it like a spring, mm. you know? And what's interesting about it, this is the natural way to do it. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's natural. It's our default. Like you take a person and you have them do simple hopping types of exercises or whatever. That's the one thing they're going to do perfectly on the very first day because it is the way the human body is intended to operate. That was Boo Schexnader, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. If you're in the world of sports performance, you've probably heard of jump testing mats. These mats use hang time to measure total jump height or contact time to measure quickness abilities off of the ground. The best jump mat that I've come across also happens to be a sponsor of this show, which is the Plyomat. The Plyomat is not only accurate, easy to use, and affordable, but it also allows you to string multiple mats together to add an extra dynamic to plyometric testing and training. To check out the Plyomat, you can head to plyomat.net. That's P-L-Y-O-M-A-T dot net. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. It's great to have you here, and I'm excited to welcome back to the show Coach Boo Schexnader. Boo has over 40 years of experience in the coaching and consulting fields. He's regarded internationally as one of the leading authorities in training design, and he's been a huge contributor to the coaching education fields. Boo is well noted for his time with the LSU track and field staff, and he's coached numerous Olympians and world championship medalists. On the podcast today, Boo will be talking about proprioception in training. So how do we look at the role of the sensing apparatus of our muscles that detect where we are in space and help, help us to skillfully control movements? How do we go about looking at the role of that apparatus through things like complex training, where we're combining, for example, light and heavy weights, or where we're doing things that might leave those proprioceptors more fatigued, like a series of higher volume or heavy squat work? We'll also be talking about the obsession with drills, so common in coaching versus high-speed whole part athletic movement, so getting in the motor learning aspect there. We'll be talking a lot about reflex spring-like action in jumping and sprinting versus, you could say, more overcoaching versions of that skill. We'll be talking a lot about pelvic and lumbar mechanics in running, Olympic lifting thoughts, and much more. It's always awesome having Boo on the show. Uh, let's get to the episode here. Boo, it's great to have you back on the show. Um, got a ton of questions. Some somehow I doubt I'm going to get through all of them. Maybe maybe I will <laughs> today. But hey, I appreciate you being back on here. I'm I'm looking forward to our chat today. Thank you, Jewel. It's always a pleasure. I always enjoy talking to you. So I I have um this one for the first question. I know we've talked a lot about uh, some of the contrast that you've done in the weight room, like having different weighted barbells and things like that, running in contrast. I don't know if I've asked you as much about doing things uh, of a contrast nature out on the track or for speed work. So things like mixing sleds with regular sprints or uh, an overspeed type stimulus with a regular sprint or anything like that or with plyometrics. Uh, I'm curious how contrast works its way into speed for you and, and when you would find it um, the most appropriate to start having more advanced waves of things uh, with that equation. Well, the, um, I, I appreciate you asking that question because I have some definite thoughts on it. But when I look at complexes in general, and, and I kind of look at complexes the same way, whether they're on the track, in the weight room, bio complexes, whatever the case may be, basically what you're doing there is you're 
complicating a training stimulus. And more complica complicated training stimuli bring about better adaptations in that regard. You know, what we're trying to do is not give these athletes things that they can handle and things that they can master immediately, but we want to give them things that there is a certain amount of nuance to it in order to enable them to ultimately master things at a higher level. I think a lot of these contrast methods, what they do is they're playing proprioceptive games. You know, some of them alternately fatigue and build, rebuild proprioceptors. And as a result of that, you get a pretty complicated training environment and therefore really great adaptation and also a certain sharpness comes proprioceptively as a result of this type of work. So I do this work, you know, I'll have different combinations of uh, resisted work. I don't do much assisted work anymore, but I'll do different combinations of resisted work and non-resisted work and things of that nature. Sometimes I'll have varied weights uh, on the resisted work within the same session and whatever. And to be very frank with you, I don't have a lot of formulas that are really exact. I just kind of change it up. I just think variety is good. You know, I, I was fortunate. I never finished my PhD, but I did start it. And one of my professors uh, was one of America's foremost uh, motor learning experts. His name was uh, Dick McGill, Richard McGill. And one of the things that he drilled into my mind is that variety and practice Im improves transfer to the test. However, variety in practice often decreases the level of practice performance. Hmm. What I'm saying is you mixing these things up and throwing these things at athletes and such is very likely to make them struggle in the practice environment. But then when it comes time to actually do what they have to do, if you've got them in shape and proprioceptively sharp and you put them out there, it all gels, you know, it all starts to shine. And, and that's, a, that's a tough thing for a coach to wrap their head around particularly a skill-based coach mm -hmm. or a feeling-based coach, you know, because you're always thinking in terms of good technique and perfect technique and such, you know. But he, he kind of drilled into my mind that, yeah, there's that practice where the kid comes out and does every repetition perfect, but there's also that practice where the first few reps suck and then the next few mm -hmm. reps, you know, you coach and it gets a little better and the next few reps get a little better. And by the end of the practice, you know, things finally look pretty good. And Sometimes, in, in many ways, that practice might be more valuable than the one where everything goes perfectly. So, in short, that's kind of my way I look at complexes, period, is diversifying the practice uh, environment in order to achieve a more complicated training stimuli. Now, but to answer the second part of your question, I don't think complexes are necessarily good or applicable in all times of the year because Sometimes the, uh, they're at such a high level from a proprioceptive standpoint and a complexity standpoint that they're out of reach for certain people at certain times of the year. So I, I like complexes at two times of the year. One time of the year is like late specific prep, and the other time of the year is uh, to use them at some extent during your peaking time. You know, if it's, you know, if you're if like going to the collegiate track and field model, for example, you know, if you start training on September 1st, What's the use of doing a complex when everything that you're doing is new to the athletes mm -hmm. anyway? You know, everything's new to them at that point. But when you fast forward to Thanksgiving, you know, or Christmas time, and now all of a sudden they've seen everything that you have. And there's a certain, not mental staleness, but a certain physical staleness that comes. This is when the complexes are great to break through that and to produce some type of nuance to the training that you're employing. And then, of course, during the peaking times of the year, the complexes are effective because ultimately 
we have to be at our proprioceptive sharpest for these types of activity for the at these times of the year. So why not have something that challenges proprioception at a higher level? So so in short, I, I think that when you do complexes like in the really early stages of training, it, it's kind of like playing your trump card far too early mm-hmm. and at the wrong time. And it just kind of wastes an opportunity that could be really, really valuable at, at some other time. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned, yeah, when athletes start the season, it's all new to them. <laughs> you could do very, yeah. I mean, that's where training can certainly be its absolute simplest. I know we've talked about that quite a bit throughout our conversations together and not needing to add unnecessary uh, complexity to it quite yet. I, It is interesting, like with the trump cards, I know we've talked about that too, where I think one way of looking at it is simply, and I think it's good, is just finding more intense pieces of training to lay down throughout the year. But it's, I think that if we only go with intensity, we don't think of, like you mentioned, the proprioceptive piece or the motor learning piece, it can actually just go like you would have the mentality of, okay, we're going to go from deep squats to half squats to quarter squats to max isos to a two-inch step up with 700 pounds. You know, it's almost like the just intensity, if you're only playing intensity, it almost can get a little ridiculous and a little one-sided versus, okay, let's bring in more of the motor learning piece to up the intensity and, and you have more pieces to put in the equation. I think it's a much more robust training stimulus versus I think it's easy to just get very one-sided with that or only thinking of, all right, we're going to go from 200s to 150s to 100s to, you know, whatever. It just fits with how we learn as humans more. It just feels kind of like feeling like a basketball game. That's how I always put it too. <laughs> how do I feel? After no, that's, basketball game? that's a good way to put it. And, uh, you know, complexity is a form of intensity in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. You know, We are drive. we are producing not just speed power, we're all producing skill you know, athletes, we're trying to develop athletes that are receptive to skill acquisition. So that's a big piece. You've mentioned proprioceptive sharpness a little while. And it's a term I think, like, like I feel what that is. Like, in, intuitively, at least, I, I get that. I'm trying to kind of put it into words in my head or, or think about an example. I know one, um, I remember when I was working with swimming at Cal, one of the pro swimmers actually had said, his, um, I think there's different things you do in the warm up that kind of give your body an idea of how good you're going to be on the day. And one swimmer had said, he said the better he was at doing just handstands and warm up, like just a free handstand and his ability to balance himself. He's like, if I was really good at that, I knew it was going to be a good training day. And I don't know, it's, like, it's almost like because it's like everything's involved in that. There is a strength piece, but it's also like your nervous system can kind of react to rebalance your hand faster or something like that, you know. And, it's just kind of, to me, that was almost an example. And I wouldn't necessarily, after he said that, I didn't have all the athletes be like, all right, measure your handstand and we'll use that to determine your one. I, you know, <laughs> I didn't go there, but it was interesting to think about that because I've kind of felt that too, at least from that kind of balancing type standpoint. So I'd just be curious for, I know you've mentioned it a lot of times with the proprioceptive sharpness, but if you can unpack that a little bit, I would be curious where your mind goes with that. Yeah, sure. I, I really think that there are certain things you do in training that sharpen proprioception because they're stimulating to the nervous system. I see I see proprioception as an extension of the nervous system, basically. You know, mostly if you look at gamma loop systems and things of that nature, it's neural in function is what it really is. But that being said, some types of training sharpen that and some types of training fatigue it. And anytime you do something that's going to fatigue the proprioceptive systems, you're going to have to expect a certain decrease in coordination, certain decreases in uh, elasticity and things of that nature. 
elasticity because a lot of these proprioceptors are involved in elastic responses and such, you know. So, and we kind of know that exercises that are long, slow, heavy ones typically fatigue proprioceptors, and it seems like power based stuff that we do seems to sharpen them. So, alternating them takes these proprioceptors through the yin and the yang, mm -hmm. so to speak, of the extremes. And ultimately, when we get to competition, we want to be at our proprioceptive best. And leading into a competition, it's important to understand, I think, that you want uh, to steer away or at least have supplied sufficient recovery from any of the bouts of exercises that are likely to produce severe uh, fatigue. Like these complexes that we mentioned a little while ago, uh, um, or, or more important, like weight room complexes that involve uh, um, like some of your French contrast stuff and whatever, you know, they kind of, that's what they do. They alternately damage and restore proprioception mm -hmm. within the com within the, the, the context of a single workout. Interesting. So that's fine. And that's, per you know, that's a good way of doing things, but you do have to look at the back end and being a allow yourself to uh, recover completely from those proprioceptive fatigue situations before you go back out there. You know, I've, for years, I've kind of operated on the premise of what I call proprioceptive supercompensation. You're not going to find it in the literature anywhere, but I use it on a very regular basis in my speed program. You know, we'll do like a squat on Monday, a squat Monday, and, you know, you fatigue these proprioceptors. And most speed power systems, if you do something like that on Monday, you're back sprinting again on Thursday. And you're ready to sprint on Thursday, but... I've always found that on Friday or even sharper, and mm -hmm. I always felt that that was kind of because of proprioceptive bounce back, mm -hmm. meaning that you you got this situation where you drove the proprioceptive systems down and they recover and they regenerate, but eventually they'll supercompensate, and you'll find that athletes going to be actually shorter than they would have been had you not wrecked the proprioception. I'm using wreck as an extreme term, but <laughs> yeah. that's the point I'm making. Had you not wrecked the proprioception on Monday. So that's why for years uh, in, in the speed power models I have, like in specific prep, you pretty much see things like squat Monday and speed development Friday in the work that I've done is that I found that that's that's way. You know, ultimately, we always think in terms of peaking for competitions, but I think it's important that you peak for certain key workouts as as well. So that's kind of my take on it. And uh, I, I think that the, the bulge tendon organs and many people are just, chronically undertrained because people, even though they do the right stuff in training, often don't do the ballistic stretches and things like they do. They need to affect those thresholds and so forth. So it's a big piece. And just generally observing the, the, the principles of variety and variance in your training is a good way to start. Uh, not getting caught in a rut doing the same things over and over again is a, is a good place to begin as well. So in short, I guess that would, those would be my thoughts on it. I don't think you have to be a proprioceptive genius from the standpoint of knowing biologically exactly what's going on in all situations. But I do think that you have to have an appreciation for how certain types of work affect them. You know, coaches for years and years have identified the fact that things like, you know, explosive multi-throws and some types of Olympic lifts and even simple things like skipping for height and distance seem to regenerate proprioceptors to some extent. So I, I just think these are the models that we're ultimately looking at. And when new forms of contrast training or new forms of, uh, of, um, of, um, uh, of complex training come out, 
I, I never see any of them as groundbreaking, frankly. Mm-hmm. I just see them as a new variation that somebody found cool and wrote something about, whereas the actual principles involved in them are no different than the principles of any other complex training design. And uh, again, not taking any way or thing away from those people, but I just kind of lump them all in the same box in that regard and use them appropriately. Yeah, I, I think with that in mind, it's like the original complex training was really just playing a sport. Like I even think about playing basketball or something like you're going to run down in the court, up and down the court a few times. You're going to get a little fatigue, but then you have to find a way to jump anyways and sprint anyways. And hopefully the fatigue isn't so overwhelming. You just can't usually if it's so overwhelming, you just walk for a little bit or jog and take it easy so you can regenerate your system and then go start sprinting hard again. And you might not be a hundred percent. I mean, I think you can overdo that. You play too much or it, it it's i always found the sweet spot for that was kind of like a pickup game intensity you know and then yeah. <laughs> pickup game intensity you know, yeah sorry no, go ahead no i'm sorry but i was going to say you're correct you know and if you look another key variable in like a game like that is the biometric effects and the contact times you know the change of direction is long mm-hmm. contact time biometric type of activity then you got the responsive jumps and so forth yeah. so yeah you got a wide variety of different things all plugged in there yeah, 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 exactly. And it was funny. I was just, um, I was just kind of looking in. I was writing an article about um, contact times. I had to go back and look up. Well, what's a one eighty cut? What's a you know a complete a ninety cut? And it is. It's really, it's really cool to look at all the different. I, I think we can, you know, especially in a track and field situation. It, you know, we can atomize things and be like, all right, this is this time. This is this time. And and I think that's good. It's good to know. But at the same time, you play sport. It's kind of cool to know the contact times and see someone doing it doing a, a change of direction okay they got their longer contact time okay here they got their shorter one and i i, I think back to i've i feel like um i think sometimes coaches are known for telling stories repeatedly oh hey coach told this story about 10 times this year so i'm gonna be that guy now but I, I i this is just a story for me as the highest i touched um jumping in high school in basketball was a, i got three inches over the top of the square at about six foot six one and it was after doing a bunch of change of direction, like sprints at the end of practice. And that stimulus, man, it just did something to get my one leg jump really, really, it really assisted that to a point beyond, um, you know, whatever, if I would have just gone and done a typical warm up or something like that, or tried to be super specific. All my contact times in this warm up are all specific to this jump. It was like, no, like doing the change of direction contact and the mixed with the sprints and the short contacts. Something about that got me really fired up. So, it's that pieces of that have always kind of stuck with me where it happened organically. And yeah, like it just with that as a base, like this training has always existed. It's always been wired in the system. We can now just take it and put new pieces in when athletes need it and have those principles. But um, yeah, I, I agree. Even it's interesting too, because I mean, you've been through all this. I Do you feel like, like in the 80s and 90s when like Giles Cometti and I think I had this as a question, but like I think that's when a lot of the complex and Werner Gunther, that's when it seemed like the complexes were really getting creative. To me, it's almost seemed like it's actually been a little bit of a pullback since then in in, in that end of the creativity. I'm just curious your thoughts on, on that piece of it. No, I'm very familiar with his work and in the track and field world, um, I think every coach uh, that that video of uh, Gunther, uh, training and doing those complexes that he was doing went viral and you know and it was kind of a hot topic for a long time but you know i think part of that is just human nature it doesn't mean that any of the training was discredited it's just that we always seem to be ready to move on to the newest coolest sexiest thing whereas 
sometimes the things that we used to do are perfectly fine and really, you know, serve the purpose possibly even better than those things that we're mm-hmm. moving on to. You know, you and I both know that um, coaching and in particular the, the performance coaching world of the strength and conditioning world is sadly fad driven. And in many cases, uh, you know, we're, 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 we got hot topics that aren't thoroughly researched and whatever, just because of, you know, social media, YouTube hits and things of that nature. And that's just always a little bit of a scary thing for me. You know, I get roundly criticized quite often because I'll regularly teach a strength and conditioning coach, of course, I should say to, to coaches. And we cover topics like weight training and medicine ball training and plyometrics and body weight circuits and all of these things. And they'll get really upset because we're not covering some of the cool topics. They'll ask why. And it's simple because in two years, all of that stuff will be gone. And there'll be a whole another new set of cool topics that, you know, you're upset mm-hmm. that we're not covering in this class if you take it a second time. So that being said, I, I try to be the, the person that um, that doesn't move as quickly. I try to, you know, check the ice before I step on it, so to speak, with, regarding these types of things. You know, I'm the person that when Windows 10 came out, I still bought Windows 7 because I wanted to make sure all the bugs were out of <laughs> Windows 10. You know, I think there's some value in that mm-hmm. to some extent, you know, and, and not always, you know, sometimes being the cool the cool person is not always necessarily the best thing. And going out on the limb first is never really necessarily a good strategy. Today's podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is an online software for coaches and trainers, and I've continued to hear great things about the Team Builder platform. If you're looking for either an in-house training portal for your training groups or an online training hub, be sure to check out the Team Builder training software. Yeah, I've seen that like bell curve of adapt. There's like the early adapters. That's like the very small percentage. It's like whatever the new thing is, they're doing. <laughs> you know, somewhere in the middle is probably the most consistent. Um, you know, in in many ways, versus always trying that. I, I, yeah, uh, you know, that bell curve is a good analogy. There are always people on the edges that that bell curve that are doing you know work, but you still got to be in that curve. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't get outside of it. Yeah, I think where the novelty, it's interesting because, yeah, to think about being in the 80s and 90s and seeing that novelty coming out through like the Werner Gunther type stuff, or the Giles Cometti type stuff, I feel like more the novelty now, because I don't think personal training was really a thing back then. And now it is. So it's like, it's almost like a lot of the exercises now are more, they actually take the exercise and just one exercise and add a bunch of steps into it. It's like, all right, we're doing plyometrics, so let's slam a medicine ball and do a burpee tuck jump and it's 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 almost like where I feel like back then it was just more playing with different exercises and now it's almost like it's my opinion but I feel like now people take single exercises and make the single exercise have more steps to it and more twists to it or something like that where almost more of like a general population type um I don't know or just exercising just finding new ways to exercise versus it seemed like at least back then it was more linked to motor adaptations and things like that but that's just my perception when I do see people's iterations of creativity now or a lot of uh, creativity now no i think there's there's some truth to that i i think that in many cases you know trainers are kind of scratching the surface on a lot of things and aren't really going deep enough to really Mm -hmm. get significant sustained adaptations in speed power or endocrine responses or whatever the case may be yeah, a lot of the depth. Would you say a lot of the depth really? Uh, this is kind of where I've gone, but I feel like the missing depth, or if I had to say the number one missing depth piece, I feel like it's motor learning. 
just like that process of learning like you i think said either before i got started with the show like it it can be messy sometimes it's like we always want to see this perfect thing or replicate the perfect exercise and i just feel like that's a huge piece of the depth and i know you have a huge background in that so you know i am i am curious if you think that like maybe we can go to the drill piece as well like why do people love drills so much you know and why um, I, I'd be curious for you to chat a little bit about um, that depth of motor learning and some solid principles there that maybe can transcend like just exercise selection and help people to make yeah. better decisions. Yeah, sure. I think we've already discussed how you know variability in practice eventually affects improvements and transfer, even though the practice might necessarily get worse. But um, motor learning is unanimous. Um, you know, of course, motor learning research is all pretty much done on, based on simpler skills, but motor learning research is unanimous that whole learning is better than part learning, meaning that it, you know, if, if you take practice the entire skill, the rates of improvement are far greater than if you break it up into pieces and then try to assemble those pieces. Now, I'll be first to admit that in a lot of sports situations, the skills are so complex that you really can't, for example, uh, tackle the entire skill on the very first day of training like if you're for example teaching someone who's never done it before how to pole vault well you'll never get them to do pole vault on the first day so yeah you have to break it down but if you do break it down bigger chunks are better than smaller chunks there's so many rhythmic factors there are so many elastic loading factors that link different phases of a movement together that once you start to take them and break them apart, they never get the nuance that's associated with them. And in many cases, that's the most important thing. You know, uh, I hate to use track and field examples, but I remember one time I used to do a lot of work with a, a track coach. Um, his event that he really liked to coach was triple jump. And uh, he had terrible triple jumpers, but he loved coaching it. And when I, saw him lecture at a clinic on triple jump. He did a phenomenal job in the lecture. So here's a guy who obviously knows his stuff in triple jump, but it's not happening for him, the actual coaching practice. And then one day I got to watch him coach and the athletes came down the runway and they took off. And the only thing they did was take off. They didn't do phase one, phase two, phase three. They only did the takeoff and they did that like five or six times, right? Then they did five or six repetitions where they only got to do the first phase and five or six reps where they only got to do the second phase. And, you know, and at the end of the practice, there were only a few reps where they actually practiced the entire event. And my point is, is that 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 was the missing link there, meaning that it was too broken out. The rhythmic issues, the uh, elastic loading factors that link those phases were not able to be trained. You learn a lot of things at come from things the coach doesn't say because of the perceptions and our own personal error correction methodologies and things of that nature. None of that was being allowed to happen. So in short, that's why, you know, that that's inarguable. And that's why I've never been a big drill person per se, you know, ultimately <clears throat> we as coaches really like drills because they're typically pretty easy to, 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 uh, to teach. And, uh, and, they're kind of a comfort zone for coaches as well, I think. You know, when you look at drills, I've had coaches tell me, oh, this is a great drill because in this drill, they have to do it right. <laughs> That's not true. It, nothing is idiot proof. Idiots are geniuses in their own way, you know. And in that regard, uh, I've, I've seen so many people, you know, you know, I don't really have many drills and I don't care to have many drills. I prefer to practice parts of the event. 
the drills that I do and the drills that I have, uh, I really like them. And the main reason why I like them is because they're more economical from a time standpoint, uh, meaning that I can get far more repetitions in a short period of time in the drill than I can in the actual event or sport or whatever it is. So most of the drills that I do are that, they, that they're just amplifying opportunities for repetition uh, more so than the actual sport of the event themselves. And they're very specific in that. The other mistake people make is that they, I think, is that they stick with drills far, far too long. You know, if you told me you're going to do drills for a few weeks at the start of your practices and then move into the complete skills and such, well, I'm fine with that. But, you know, but to go on and on and mm-hmm. on and on with them, again, it kind of tends to be a comfort zone. And now all of a sudden you, you're about to go to a competition and all you've been doing is these simple drills and stuff, you know. You know, it's amazing to me how coaches spend so much time looking at what they want to do as far as phase layout. When's my general prep? When's my specific prep? And they look at all the details, but they don't truly understand that there are phases of skill learning as well. And you have to move through those phases. You would never think about bringing an athlete into a high-level competition without having done some type of general preparation and specific preparation. Well, why do we bring athletes into high-level competition when in the skill side of it and the motor learning side of it, all they've done is a very remedial general preparation? Yeah. It's like, if you think about it from, um, I love that. It's like thinking about it from my mind lately has been on like grades. And I think about, okay, if you're doing a grill that a, a grill, a drill, that would be like grade seven and your actual event is, you know, grade 11 or 12. Why are you doing seventh grade? Like the fundamentals of seventh grade math over and over again, you don't need to keep doing that. You know, it like, you don't need to keep coming back to this every, it's almost insulting in some ways, you know, <laughs> I feel like if you taught a class that way, it'd be kind of insulting and i i think about like you know like even like someone like um like mac mcclung in the dunk contest this past year you see this athlete doing these incredible dunks it's not like he's like warm he didn't go to warm up he's like oh i'm gonna practice my plant here and i'm gonna you know you don't see those basketball players like like going through their takeoff steps they just go do it and they do it on such a high level it's just amazing and when they practice i'm sure it's just warm up maybe shoot around pick up game a little bit go dunk you know and it's not like i'm gonna do the fundamental drills that lead up to my dunk a million times. You know, I just think it's kind of humorous to think about. Yeah. I, I think when it comes to skill learning, we lose sight of the most important factor in training and that's the overload philosophy, you know, like um, quite often, I think what happens sometimes is that coaches um, remediate something and they just stick with it at a remedial level until it looks perfect. But the bottom line is mm-hmm. it's not going to look perfect until you actually apply a little bit of intensity. You know, so quite often coaches, you know, they're hard headed. Like, yeah, and, and I understand it, but like, we're not going to move on with more intensity or more speed until you can do it at this slow speed perfectly. It'll never be perfect until you introduce the intensity. You know, that's the factor there. You know, to, to, to supply that type, you know, I try to move on with higher levels of intensity, not when an athlete shows total mastery, but when they show decent mastery. And then you challenge them at a higher level. And that way, I know when I took, you used the example, but I, I know I did, I, I took algebra one, I made an A in it, but I really didn't understand it at a deep level until I took algebra two. And that's the way sports work. You know, it, it, it doesn't make sense. It's kind of like saying, look, we'll let you sprint when you get fast, or we'll let you lift weights when you get strong. No, you would never do that because sprinting is where you get fast and lifting weights is mm-hmm. when you get strong. 
So why do we apply that backwards philosophy to skill development? It just, again, doesn't make sense from a motor learning standpoint. Yeah, it is. It's almost like, I hate to use the term red pill. I just think it's so overused, like the pill that changes your whole life and philosophy and, you know, thoughts on things. But I, I do think that a big, I, I guess something like that would be that like this drill-based perfect form, reducing perfect form down to neat, neat little drills isn't is actually not serving athletes well. I think no, it, that, it really it really isn't. No, of course. Yeah, and then but then that that goes with that though is just this world of oh like how does the athlete actually learn? It is messy. It might not look perfect, and I think there is this thing of it's almost like if you've never been exposed to that way of thinking, you just do what everyone else does, which is try to do the fundamentals perfectly, this reduced version perfectly. And then you keep coming back to that because, well, hey, we did something perfect today. It's almost like this addiction to do this simple thing. I know I can get you to do, you know, quote unquote, perfectly. And then, but then it's almost like you get into the actual event and you, I think you start to almost frame the actual skill under that, like wanting to control everything in the skill too. You know, like the coach you mentioned who it's like, oh, well, we'll do phase one till it's perfect, you know, and then we'll do this little part of phase two till it's perfect. But then you put the whole thing together and just didn't fit versus like, well, it just going through it and being sloppy and I'm mean, quote unquote sloppy. It's not really sloppy because the body's learning and giving them opportunities and just being able to see things from that perspective. Uh, even back to what you said about the like the proprioceptive stuff where this I was just making this connection too. it's just really cool to think like I've been through. <clears throat> excuse me, um, like neurology type classes where they'll say, okay, well, you did this bilateral lift and it, it you know, down-regulated your nervous system because you did like a squat and you did a toe touch and the toe touch got worse because it, you know, your nervous system didn't like it. Well, it's like, well, does that mean it's bad? Like, you know, does that mean you could never do it? Like, like you're saying like, all right, well, give your, that, use that as a challenge to the system, you know? And yeah, that's where doing that stuff in a contrast is so, yeah, it, it, don't think of it as just, oh, this is wrong. Think of it, yeah, this is a challenge. How can you adapt to this? doesn't mean you have to, like, do that squatting crazy volume all the time really heavy, but you can think of it just, it's just how you think of it, I think, and how you think of the adaptations that can happen from it. No, things that, things that harm us short-term tend to strengthen us long-term. Yeah. It was the old saying, the basic thing behind coaches, that was does not kill you, makes you stronger to some extent. But I do think, going back to what you said previously, um, I, I think another drill uh, addiction thing for coaches is that a lot of coaches are really good at cueing things and teaching skills at slow speeds, but they don't know how to teach them mm. at fast speeds. You know, ultimately, the things you say, the cues you use, the methods you use to teach things at slow speeds don't typically work at fast speeds. So you got to be versed in cueing and teaching at slow speeds, drill speeds, but also you have to be able to and teach within the context of the sport itself and within the context at the speeds i should say of the sport itself and a lot of coaches just aren't comfortable at doing that they try to go back to the same old things that were effective at slow speeds it things feel entirely different to the athlete's body at that point you know when things speed up you got to have different cue systems you know like uh, I've never been a big fan of like learn by doing clinics and things of that nature, you know, because I've always had a coach, you know, show me how to do the drill. Okay. Um, I'll show you how to do the drill. Cause if I, if I can do it, I'll, I'll know what it feels like and I'll be able to teach it. No, you don't. You know, like if I go out there and I learn how to do a whole bunch of long jump drills, do you really think it feels the same way it does to an athlete who's coming down at 11 meters per second 
you know, and taking off at 11 meters per second. No, it's entirely different. So what it feels like to you is entirely different to what it feels like to a high-level performer. So ultimately, we need to be investing as coaches in our cue skills, uh, our, our ability to identify uh, verbiage, our ability to identify things that will bring about the responses we need at high speeds. And that's like the weakest part of practically every coach's game, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's just where it's harder to learn that in a book or a teach me this in one, two, three. I think that's where because that's the easy way to learn, right? Like, and again, there's I think there there's a place for that, but it's like that's not as easy <laughs> as and it's different with every athlete too in so many ways, you know. And it's just something you start to feel over time. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious with um just at the level of more concrete things though. I am curious just to kind of fully explore the idea. Is you did mention there are some drills that you like, um, and I know you've mentioned too the idea because I've th- actually I've thought about this or I found myself thinking about this um, over the past few years since you mentioned it at least on a few occasions. But the idea of like helping an athlete get eighty percent of the way there, like technically, and the last twenty percent is their own. And I think that might not fit entirely with this, but I am just curious how you look at that. I guess you call it like the fundamentals or learning the basics or the first eighty percent, you know, drills like what. Where does that first 80% fall with some of those things and then versus the athlete, you know, becoming more autonomous in, in the process as they move forward? Yeah, there, what you said is very accurate in my opinion. I don't know if it's 80% or 90% or whatever, but there's some threshold there that you teach. And at some point in time, the rest of it is kind of up to the athlete. You know, every athlete has their own rhythmic sense. Every athlete has their own uh, internal error correction mechanisms now you see athletes get better with no coaching at all mm-hmm. so obviously there's some error correction that just takes place naturally with athletes and and um, you don't have to have a great athlete to, to do that all that that exists in all of us so many times uh, i see tiny details of skilled movements being addressed in ways that are paralyzing athletes when quite frankly like you want to get them in the ballpark and let those little tiny things uh, work themselves out. For example, like double knee bend in the Olympic lift. You know? And, you know, there's all these arguments, teach it, don't teach it. It happens. It does. It's inarguable that it happens, but it happens so fast that it's really difficult to cue effectively. And as a result, a lot of people who have tried to cue it have wrecked athletes and therefore claim it's not a good thing. But we see it happen all the time. And every, every sport has its own set of things like that, things that are so subtle and at, at such high speeds that it's difficult to really effectively cue them. But if you build the surrounding pieces around it, you understand what is cueable and teachable and what really isn't. You get them close enough, they can connect the dots the rest of the way. Supplements may not be the core of a total nutrition and human performance program, but they can really support and enhance the process. On the level of supplements, Lost Empire Herbs has been my go-to for the last five years. As someone who is constantly observing nature in motion to help me understand movement better, so too do I draw from nature in my supplementation regime. If you want to check out some of my favorite supplements for energy, strength, and enhancing the total impact of your training regimen, uh, things such as Shiliagit, which has been well-recommended by many strength coaches, the Phoenix Formula, which was my original Lost Empire Herbs supplement that really made me a believer in the power of herbalism, things like pine pollen, mushroom tinctures, and more, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. 
There you can use the code JOEL15, that's J-O-E-L-1-5, for 15% off your order. Definitely check out Lost Empire Herbs. They're an awesome company and will really help that total aspect of your performance training process. Yeah, that's part of the fun too, is seeing them connect the dots. You know, it's, it's, it's not fun. It wouldn't be fun at all to coach and be like, all right, here's my manual. One, two, three, four, five. Everyone do it exactly this way. One, two, like, well, I don't know. I just would not find that way of coaching very fun, you know, especially if that's how it was the whole time and, and throughout an athlete's career. Like, it's part of the fun is seeing how athletes solve that problem and knowing that not all athletes are going to solve that problem exactly the same way and looking at some of the different strategies people use. It's interesting. So it's, yeah, it's not, it's not an assembly line, you know, it's, you know, it, it's coaching. There's a difference there, you know? Yeah. Maybe you take your freshman through an assembly line of drills and progressions and so forth and get them to a certain point. But at some point in time, your coaching becomes reactive and a little less hands-on. It just, it just must, it should. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, like you said, at some point I, there is a beginning of that more of where more of that is certainly present. I know I've taken athletes through the posi- positions you're going to go through, you know, these positions in the Olympic lifts, teaching Olympic lifts to college athletes. But it was even within that, it was interesting to me to look at some of the strategies like like the double knee rebend and things like that. How did athletes process when the bars below the knees to that midpoint? Because not everyone did that the same way. Well, I was, and honestly, I didn't get unless it just looked absolutely crazy outside the bandwidth i usually didn't even mess with it that much i'm like as long as this isn't like i had some athletes like purposefully taking their knees way back and then just smashing their thighs in the bar to be like hey i did it (laughs) and honestly i'm like you know what if you're a swimmer i really don't care that much as long as you're not hurting yourself and the bar's going up (laughs) and you feel good about it um but it was interesting to see how people would even just process the instructions that i was giving them it they made it for fun honestly with that but yeah i I agree there's that time for more yeah more more technical more you know step but then it very quickly becomes yeah there's a lot more nuance as you start to get through it Mm -hmm. um i did want to ask you as well actually going back just a little bit but just to kind of close out the um the complex stuff with like in the speed world I know you've given some examples of different barbells, um, like different barbell weights are going like down a line and things like that. Um, and I am curious what, if you have kind of some more favorite uh, setups with like contrast, like sled contrasts or uh, even working plyometrics or even maybe a little touch of fatigue, like a longer sprint in a contrast, any things that you really like doing uh, over the years that, that really stand out to you in that world? Um, the thing that I really like that I've kind of made my money off of is contrasting uh, plyometrics with ballistic lifting. Mm. So like some type of jump movement that's loaded at about maybe 10 to 15 percent body weight alternated with a uh, jump movement that's uh, un- that's uh, unresisted. Um, be- because ultimately, I think that when you, you know, part of competing is not just perfect execution is dealing with imperfect execution and making the best out of imperfect uh, execution. And I think that good athletes have to be versed in a wide variety to some extent of uh, contact times and coupling time situations. And I think this is where you can effectively do that type of stuff. You know, I think that quite, quite often in many situations, um, we tend to get into plyometric worlds that are too overly focused on highly responsive types of things and kind of lose sight of the fact that everything we do is not going to be perfect. It's not always going to be perfectly responsive. So we have to be able to deal with 
a wide variety of things. I know when I go to places and consulting work and I see bad change of direction, that's typically what I see is lack of diversity and poor organization in the biometric programs hmm. in most cases. Interesting. So you're saying, yeah, if athletes are poor and change of direction abilities, they they need more diversity, like more diverse plyometric movements that will eventually just doing those will help them to self-organize the change of direction versus, hey, you're going to change direction just like this, you know, <laughs> put your foot here and, and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm not too big on the whole, here's the cone, plant your foot here, stick this foot here, you know, put footprints down on the ground and try to, you know, I'm not too big on that kind of stuff for the reasons I mentioned earlier. But yeah, I think the term you use self-organize is that that's what you're ultimately building. Because there's no way you can address all of the situations you'll ever see in a game in any way, shape, or form. You know, I got a colleague right now, and we're kind of talking about foot contact patterns. And one of the points that I was trying to make is that our bodies seem to be able to organize that. You know, if if you have high impact situations, quite often you see heel to toe rolling kind of contacts. Lower impact situations, you kind of see more forefoot and so forth. And we don't coach that. The body just kind of anticipates what the force mm-hmm. is going to be and puts itself in best uh, best position to accept those forces, amortize those forces. So why would you short circuit what the, the body's inherent uh, movement organization principles? Yeah, yeah. It, within that too, it's like always one thing with coaching. It's like always putting that um, self organization on a very high respect. You know, like like. The athletes. If you're good, you yeah. do, yeah. And but if you don't, you think you're smarter than the self organization, and you overcoach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, speaking of coaching, actually, one of the um, you know this was one of the first pieces of technical coaching that I think I read from you, and this was, I mean, man, this was like 15, yeah, probably 15 years ago now, and it was, and I remember it so clearly because I was at this track meet, and there was a guy coaching triple jump. Uh, from another team and this is when i was i was like 25 so i'm still trying to figure out you know a lot a lot like cues and what do i say or do or expect and there was a guy coaching triple jump and it was like of course in the middle of the meet which is like funny and he's like no you really gotta like paw your leg aggressively down to the ground and i was thinking i was like i think i read boosh exeter say that you shouldn't do that you know let, let it be reflexive and it's funny because he was doing it in the meet too and so um i am curious like like in how you coach something like even like a bound like like the self-organization of letting athletes be reflexive in a bound versus like, like let's really drive your leg down. And then I'm also curious of how you would think that might work into sprinting. Cause I know sprinting, it's popular to like paw the foot down to the ground where versus uh, letting the system maybe choose a little bit more. Uh, I'm just curious your thoughts on that, that principle. Well, of things. I, I just try to be respectful of the way the body organizes elastic responses. You know, anytime you have an elastic response, you're going to have isometric preparation prior to ground impact, you know, like muscles around the ankle, quadriceps are going to tense up in order to prepare for impact. Then when the foot hits the ground, there's a certain amortization, you know, and that's where your elastic responses are generated. And then, of course, you push up off the ground. Well, anytime that you are trying to attack the ground in, in the, the incorrect manner that you mentioned, basically what you've done is you've gone immediately to concentric and you've eliminated the isometric and the eccentric phases and we've eliminated the opportunity for any type of elastic response whatsoever and we all know that we produce much bigger forces through elastic responses 
So, you know, so in the bounding and hopping and those types of exercises, yeah, you do see the foot move backwards a little bit before it hits the ground. But if you actually measure the speed of the foot, you see the foot actually slowing down mm. prior to impact as opposed to speeding up prior to impact. You know, when I was first kind of delving into all this stuff, you know, of course, Telez was kind of one of my heroes. And I did what he did. I pulled out a whole bunch of old 16 millimeter videos and was looking at them. And what was interesting was, is that I saw these triple jumpers and the foot's moving back. But when the foot was moving back, you didn't see the hamstring ripped. You saw the quad rip. So that was telling you mm. that, you know, it's pretty much just gravity and the continuance mm. of cyclic movement that's really bringing the foot down to the ground. There's really not any grabbing or pawing or any of that stuff going on at that point. And that's why I, you know, to simplify it, I always tell my athletes very simply, um, you don't, don't use your leg like a hammer, use it like a spring, mm. you know? And, and what's interesting about it, this is the natural way to do it. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's natural. It's our default. Like you take a person and you have them do simple hopping types of exercises and whatever. That's the one thing they're going to do perfectly on the very first day, because it is the way the human body is intended to operate. And that's the way I look at so much athletic movement is not trying to teach the body to do something that's, Foreign, but to teach the body how to do something that's really inherent and natural. I remember when I coached, I you know, started coaching real high level people, man. I'd be out there having them accelerate. They would sprint, I would coach. They would sprint, I would coach. And I'm talking and they're sprinting and they're getting a lot better. Two years later, I keep my mouth completely shut and they get better <laughs> anyway. And that's when I realized that all of the training you're doing was building an organism that was basically able to execute that which. Is pretty natural in many situations. Back on the farm, we cut a chicken's head off; it would still run around the uh, run around the yard. So, not like sprinting is something high tech that requires all of this brain power, you know. So that being said, that's the way I kind of look at those things, you know. And uh, I know one of your things that you kind of set me in advance. You were talking about uh, one of my. Um, I'm a fanboy of Ken Clark. I really like Ken Clark's research. And, you know, he's got stuff out there with negative foot speed and so forth and sprinting, you know, moving the foot back and, and so forth. And his research supports exactly what I'm saying. You know, negative foot speed is not a new thing by any means. It's an old term that goes back to the C-grade, you know, days in the, in the early 80s. It supports by no means. And we do see, you know, typically as athletes get better and sprint better, we see the foot moving back at faster rates with respect to the center of mass and so forth. But just like his research shows that it's not a it's not a linear progression. It's a U-curve. And there comes a point at which if the negative foot speed is excessive, then now what sent what we sacrifice is the elastic responses at impact. And we see a flattening of that sinusoidal curve of the, of the body center of mass of the undulation of the center of mass. That's important. And such a big elastic energy producing factor in sprinting disappears. Just like anything else. Is it important? Yeah. Can you take it too far? No doubt. And um, that's, you know, I think what Clark is saying, to be honest with you, I agree hundred percent. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad you. I'm glad you got to that um, research because yeah, I had sent you that, and it fits actually. the The latest study that uh, him and his team put together fits very much with what you were saying with the triple jump leg coming down. I'd never heard that before. That it that triple jump leg actually slows just a little bit before the ground, which I'm like, that's so cool because instantly my mind went to the um, that latest research that Ken Clark put out, which did say, yes, as athletes get faster, there's more negative foot speed. But in the fastest athletes, 
or with very fast athletes, or like you said, there's that curve where in the highest speed, that ground speed difference actually isn't one-to-one anymore. It actually, it's like there is that preservation. Because like even I said, maybe with pure linear thinking, like even with intensity, all I can do is this one thing and just get more intense, more intense, more intense, but there's more shades in there. I think it's like, it's like the same thing in the sprint cycle. It's not just one thing. It's not just the foot coming back, but there's the elastic response piece as well and how it gets timed and managed throughout the whole body. And it's just, but it's also really cool when you see that because it reminds you the body is really complex. Like there's something that's really, I think that's amazing about having a human body that has things that are continually just a little bit beyond our full understanding that, oh yeah, it's doing this too. (laughs) And so, there is going to be that little slowdown so the body can sync itself up and get the best elastic response unique to itself, you know? Every jump contact, every sprint stride is is a deceleration and a re-acceleration. It's about maximizing the efficiency there rather than minimizing the deceleration. Yeah. So, within... um uh, like within uh, like any is there any situation where you would in- instruct an athlete to uh, like you said that with the quad as well like that's so cool that the hamstring was not active like the quad was and gravity was helping pull the leg down i'm sure like the swing leg too like the swing leg helping and the lead leg working together in harmony to create the ultimate optimal elastic response i mean do you think there's any place for kind of like the attack the ground or any sort of interface downward interface to the ground and how that's coached or instructed or any thoughts there with that well when it comes to cueing i never say never like you know i say the wrong thing in practice all the time and get good results you know because of over cueing or radical cueing or whatever the case may be but generally speaking i try to stay away from foot centric type of mm-hmm. cues when it comes to impact and, and, and force production and so forth um you know i i'm a firm believer, and I think it's been proven in, through EMG studies and research that running really originates in the vicinity of the lumbar spine and mm. the pelvis. That's where the engine effectively is. And what the legs are actually doing is amplifying the movements of the pelvis, the oscillations of the pelvis. And there's some transfer of elastic energy from the pelvis into the, the legs, you know, through, through, you know, the pelvis moves and you have pre-stretches set up on hip flexors and hip extensors. And that's what ultimately produces gait. And what I've seen is that when you get really uh, hardwired into cueing like foot strike and hardwired into like hit the ground hard, those types of things, what I often see happen is there's a bracing effect that takes place in the vicinity of the pelvis in anticipation of that. And basically you shut down the pelvic pelvic engine that, Mm. that you really need to be affected. So generally speaking, I try to steer away from all of those types of cues and I try to direct my cues uh, more upstream as far as the sprinting is concerned. If I want more intensity in sprinting, I'm looking at um, more uh, amplifying pelvic oscillation. I'm looking at the femurs, you know, working through bigger ranges of motion. I'm cueing in that area of the body as opposed to the feet. You know, like if you bring your, if you got a car, your car won't run. You don't go to work on the tires. You yeah. I love that. It it makes me think a little bit, and this is just something I've been experimenting with a little bit, especially since I've have the um I've got the little uh, Lila uh, Exogen microweights, and I'll place those. And now you, I have more angular momentum on limbs. But what I notice, it's interesting because what I notice is I actually notice more intensity and rot- rotation happening in the pelvis and lumbar area. It's almost like the center where it all originates is now. It's getting pulled harder, and you're feeling it happen. 
And to me, it's almost been a cool exercise to feel where, like, if I want to run faster, where's the initial impetus that this all starts from, you know? Like, it has to start from the center. Like, it has, you know, the Dantian or whatever, like that central, you know, just below the belly button or whatever, somewhere in there. Something in there has to change first because if I try to change the extremity first, like, that's just going to mess up the timing of the system. You know, it's got to start, something has to start somewhere else, that, um, more towards the center of the body. I guess core gets overused too, right? Because you you could say core and be like, oh, well, brace your abs heart. Well, that's not going to work, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, that's another whole issue is, you know, how, uh, you know, core in sprinting and, and jumping moves, it doesn't, you know, stabilize. And, you know, we say neutral pelvis and things like that, but we, you know, you have to see the pelvis move into posterior tilt and then anterior tilt in small degrees mm -hmm. in a repeated fashion. You know, rigidity only guarantees you injury for the most part, you know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's like um, Kibway Johnson, the hammer thrower, who was on this podcast, and I, I like something he said. It was basically like basically something to the tune of every extra thing I put in the athlete's head to think about or manage while they're doing the skill is going to take away from their full potential, and just always being conscious of that. And like you know, a cue on the pelvis might keep the pelvis from being able to oscillate like it's supposed to. You know, I mean, maybe it gives some feedback in the short term, you know, or whatever. You feel how it goes this, but at the end of the day, you can't run and hold your pelvis a particular way intentionally it's gonna make it yeah. hard for that system to move there's you know i've been battling it for years but there's still a fundamental misunderstanding about how athletes run and sprint you know basically the pelvis that vicinity is the engine the lower leg is in the foot they're force transmitters they're not big mm -hmm. force producers in those situations and the upper body is just countering you know and balancing you know you know every good therapist in america will tell you that if you are uh, hyper, if, you're, if your mobility is restricted in one body part next door in, the, in an adjacent body part, you see hypermobility. And of course, mm -hmm. the reverse is true. But we still have coaches that are screaming at athletes, work your arms, work your arms, mm -hmm. work your arms when they get tired. And you just as soon be telling them, tighten your hips, tighten your hips, tighten your hips. It's the same thing. You know, so it, it's, it's, it's disappointing the lack of sophistication that we typically approach these issues from sometimes yeah how would you go like if someone had like let's say their posture isn't good they're they are they're stuck in an anterior tilt let's say or that kind of archetype i i mean how would you go about like drawing awareness to the pelvis um, um bringing like that into the training sphere without um taking away from their ability to move do you have any principles for training that center the pelvic mechanics and things like that without at the same time overcoaching or uh, putting possible rigidity in the system? Well, first of all, um, when I see anterior pelvic tilt, I always identify faults in the acceleration process. So to me, posture is not a condition, it's a skill. Mm. I can identify a mistake uh, in the acceleration process for every single athlete who shows anterior pelvic tilt when they get to maximal velocity. I don't care who it is. I'm talking about, I, I very seldom say 100%, but I'm saying mm. 100%. Meaning that if I'm coaching you in acceleration correctly, you will not have anterior pelvic tilt upon entering uh, maximal velocity. Now, sometimes people have slight complicating factors like they overlift or over squat and lumbar spine gets tight or hip flexors mm -hmm. are tight or whatever. But suffice it to say, that's only 10% of the puzzle. 90% of it is skill based. And we're kind of hardwired for the pelvis to oscillate. And then, of course, the other 
problem is under conditions of fatigue where we start to lose posture sometimes. That's why when I see conditions of fatigue, I'm typically asking athletes to really focus hard on looseness of the pelvis or freedom of movement of the pelvis and maintaining amplitude of movement uh, in the femurs as they sprint because that seems to preserve. Remember, we preserve yeah. pelvis pelvic alignment not by stiffening it up in a position, but by con- it continuing to move effectively in the way it's intended to move. Yeah, would you, that's really interesting with acceleration. Would you feel like that's because um, like an acceleration is more front side dominant than when you get upright where there's more of that balance wheel and then when the, the femur's in front of the body, it kind of pulls, naturally pulls the pelvis into a little bit of a posterior to get the leg in front or, or something else? No, I see the mistake as being um, impatience about uh-huh. lifting the head and the torso. Oh, gotcha. You know, uh, yeah, so like if e- every athlete, and I mean every athlete that i've ever seen who has anterior pelvic tilt upon entering max velocity i can identify a stride in the acceleration pattern Mm -hmm. in which the head and the chest rolls without a commensurate movement of the pelvis Mm -hmm. the head and the chest the head and the torso lifted independently that's why i never like to use the term stand up when sprinting i want to use the term push up meaning that the, the, the body angle change is actually a result as a product of the vertical components of those foot strides, not because you're trying to lift the head or lift the chest. So you don't stand up, you push up. And of course, you know, that's cueing semantics, but I think I'm being accurate as far as, you know, the kinetics of the movements there. Yeah. And you say that kind of just starts from a fundamental disconnection kind of between the rib cage in the lower body too where like the upper body is almost doing something different where the legs are spinning <laughs> there's that's the result but that's not yeah. the cause you yeah. know the cause is a technical flaw a bad habit which is often produced by a misconception of i need to get tall so let me pick mm-hmm. up my head my chest when we haven't done that process we haven't executed that process correctly i'm going to go back time and time again it's not not a pathological issue it is a technical issue strictly a technical issue mm. and coaches don't value it enough yeah i can't tell you how many times i get the the the, the coach oh anterior pelvic tilt check the acceleration i did mm. coach it's perfect all right send the video <laughs> when i get the video sure enough there it is coach just overlooked it or coach didn't think it was important or whatever but there it is yeah makes sense um just a couple other quick questions here uh boo before our time is done for the day i maybe these are i don't know how connected these are with the theme of the rest of our conversation maybe this one is with the wave loading um i actually heard jeff hauser had said something to me about this with uh like a like an up and down wave loading in the gym like doing olympic lifts doing a heavy set a light set a heavy set a light set um i'm curious with your thoughts on the contrasting that type that type of contrast in the gym Um, results you've seen or any preferences there no, he's getting some good results out of that. And I've started looking at using a couple of uh, lighter sets as potentiation types of sets um, there. But I, do, um, I, I don't do it much because of the fact that I feel that most of my potentiation is accomplished elsewhere outside mm. of the weight room. So I think it's a really good model. Its validity and its, um, its um, use is predominantly... Um, in situations where an athlete might be lifting but doesn't have other components of the workout, meaning that they're coming into the weight room after a uh, warm-up and not necessarily after a sprint session and a plyo session moving into those things. So, so I think that's 
part of what Jeff is exploring there is ways to potentiate when you don't have the luxury of doing mm-hmm. that, uh, those other training components in that regard. So, so other than that, um, most of my heavier stuff, I'm pretty much sticking to heavy days, so to speak. I just think there's some unique forms of potentiation that go on there, and I want to take advantage of them. So it's unquestionable. I've, I've seen what he's doing. He's explained it to me, and it's unquestionable what he's getting out of it. But um, I feel like I'm getting those same results through potentiating the weight room through outside of plyometric circuits. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, yeah, just, if nothing else, it just speaks to the universal principle and it, you know, could show up elsewhere in the program very easily. And, um, yeah, definitely makes sense with that one. Uh, very last question here. I know if you get on Twitter, you'll probably guarantee within a few hours, see something about the ever running debate of Olympic lifting for, especially non-track athletes. I think it's, it'd probably be rare to have like a jumps group that didn't Olympic lift, you know, in track. I don't know if I've seen that, but then once you start getting into team sports, you know, a little bit different story. Just curious on your thoughts on that kind of spectrum of things. Track, team sports, Olympic lifting, any place where it might be not the best use of time or anything like that, uh, your take. To me, Olympic lifts are the best thing you got. You know, I mean, when that bar comes off the floor, it's moving slow. It's absolute strength. When the bar speeds up, it's power. When you catch it, it's reactive. So you got complex strength development. So all of those complexes that you want, the Olympic lift is one big complex. Here we go. Mm. And then, you know, you have these unique rates of firing, uh, you know, hip, knee, ankle, uh, lower body, upper body sequencing is uh, put at a premium in the Olympic lifts. So I see lots of skill development come out of it. I see lots of technical transfer come out of it. And the other nice thing about Olympic lifts is that there are no negatives. You don't have any proprioceptive dysfunction that results from it. Outside of maybe immediate fatigue from the workout, there's practically zero, zero uh, negatives associated with it. So I got this thing that's tremendously effective. I got this thing that has zero negatives associated with it. So why would I not use it? So so I, I use Olympic lifts with everyone mm-hmm. for those reasons. I just see too much skill development coming out of it. You know, if if you know if I'm coaching you in chess or checkers, I'm still gonna probably make you Olympic lift, to be honest with you, because I believe <laughs> in it that strongly. Now that being said, I've had many coaches it, it kind of is one of my pet peeves, coaches who are just trying to find ways not to Olympic lift. And sometimes coaches come to me from sports with poor lifting cultures and they have substitutes. Well, we do uh, jumps, we do uh, trap bar deadlift, or we do trap bar jumps or whatever the case may be. And, you know, and there, I understand there's hip and the ankle firing and those types of things and so forth. But the thing that Olympic lifts do that you cannot match anyway is the sequence, the hip, knee, ankle. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can get hip, knee, ankle from lots of things, multi-throws, jumps, whatever. You can do that in lots of ways. But I don't know of a single training modality that challenges the sequencing in the ways that Olympic lifting does, okay? Like when you put 90 95%, 100% on that bar and you got to do a heavy clean or whatever, I start seeing things breaking down, you know, as far as, hip, knee, ankle sequencing, upper body, lower body sequencing. And I want to challenge that. I want to challenge that because that basketball player in the fourth quarter when they tired, the reason they missed that shot is because upper body, lower body sequencing are out of sync at that point. So I think there are things that you accomplish in Olympic lifting that you don't accomplish anywhere else. Now, one argument that I get that is a valid argument 
is that, well, what about the athletes who just can't do it quite correctly because of this or that? I have long arm kids and they can't get their elbows up on a clean catch or whatever the case may be. I'll live with that. I'll live with it. You know, when I'm dealing with Olympic athletes, with most of the athletes that I coach, if they come off the floor correctly, shift the hips and extend the hips correctly, and the extension is correct and on time, and the upper body follows in sequence, I'm good enough. You know, I'm fine with that. So if they don't shrug quite perfectly, or if the elbows don't quite go where I want them to go on the catch, whatever the case may be, I'm fine with that. You know, again, we're not lifting to be Olympic lifters. We're lifting to improve ourselves in our sport. But there are certain faults that I'll deal with you know, in that regard. And there are certain things that I just totally won't compromise technically. And the ones that I won't compromise are ones that I think that any athlete could and should be able to do effectively regardless of their uh, their body type. You know, I remember one time I was brought in to do a clinic and I was doing this clinic and there was only a few pres presenters. And one of the presenters was an Olympic lifting guru. And he was really good. And I learned a lot from him, but I really enjoyed his talk. And he was so good that I did something that I never do. I asked a question of him at the end of his presentation. And I asked him, well, what about the long arm athletes that you have trouble getting them into the really good catch positions? And he said, well, I don't let those people Olympic lift. And I left heartbroken because after a wonderful talk, I like this guy, it's like, well, all I know is if I didn't Olympic lift with those athletes, I would have never gotten invited to speak at this clinic. I promise you that, you know. So that being said, that's my my take on it. And you know, you can you can you know email me a, a, an entire list of different activities that you think are as good as Olympic lifting and do the same thing as Olympic lifting. And I'm I'm just not buying it. Like I said, I just when I watch sports and I watch the breakdowns in technique. In critical situations, whether it's pressure or fatigue that's producing these critical situations, to me, the only place that you're able to challenge the sequencing in that manner is through your Olympic lifting program. Yeah, I definitely uh, 100% agree with you with the patterning, like an Olympic lift compared to like a trap bar deadlift. I know, like, it's almost like in some, you know, you could even maybe... Um, maybe not. I was just thinking, liken it to like a drills. It's easier to do a trap bar deadlift perfectly or jump because it's, it's, it's extremely simple. And in some perspectives or in a lot, I think it's, it's great to have those simple pieces that are completely foolproof. But, but like you said, like the, the delayed knee extension piece with the Olympic lifts, like being able to wait to extend, it's like a vertical jump. The, the way that an Olympic lift unfolds is much more similar to a vertical jump, things like that. I definitely, and when you do it well, you also feel it. And so it's, an, it's just the thing I guess I think about is why um, coaches who say, oh, we got rid of the Olympic lifts and, and now our teams are, you know, I got athletes running faster, or jumping higher, or whatever. I always want to go into that. To, you know, I always want to kind of see what was going on in there um, from that. I'm not buying it. I, you know, when, when I take Olympic, athlete, Olympic, Olympic lifting away from athletes, they do worse. So, I, I, you know, I don't want to make a single case study yeah. or extrapolate that, you know, I don't know how the only big thing was done. Was it done properly? Mm -hmm. Was it scheduled correctly? Like anything else has yeah. got to be done correctly. Technically it's got to be scheduled correctly. Um, it's got to be done at the correct intensities and so forth. And I don't want to say that I'm belittling those other activities, just about everything I mm -hmm. mentioned as a potential substitute for Olympic lifts. I, I don't think of them as effective substitutes, but I do all of those things in my program as well. So I want to be clear on that as well. But that being said, I, 
when a, when a coach tells me we got better when we stopped Olympic lifting, I got a really hard time buying that if the Olympic lifting was done correct. Yeah. Yeah. I'd always be curious to go into those programs and, you know, just kind of see what's going on too. I, I just think it's an interesting topic and yeah, interesting to get your perspective with that for sure. I know I myself am definitely a heavy user of Olympic lifting. I you know, enjoy them. So it's, a, it's good to get the different perspectives. I'd say the one, the one sport I didn't definitively was men's tennis <laughs> working at Cal. Um, but outside of that, other sports, track has always been heavy output sport like output sports even like swim sprinting like the, it seems like it goes hand in hand with output output sports real well and i don't know if like the mentality with that you know as well um but it's all about sense. power output yeah. yeah you know people think olympic lifts and you know they they don't look at a concentrated um uh training um experience for any particular muscle group and therefore they kind of poo-poo it but at the same time we, we forget that ultimately good training programs drive global responses like neural responses and endocrine responses. And that's why you live there. Yeah. Yeah. I know the home base Olympic lifting protocols and things like that have always been near and dear to my heart. Yeah. So, uh, well, Hey, Boot, thank you so much for your time. Uh, hope, I hope it didn't take you too long today. It's always good talking to you. I, I love getting these topics. I love getting in the motor learning piece too, especially. And, um, yeah, I just really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. It's always nice talking to you, Joe. You always uh, always leave a little smarter because you stimulate me as well. So thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next week.